please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23 for our study this evening, 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're getting close to being done with the book of 2 Samuel. We have this week and next week. So it's been a great study and looking forward to what God has for us tonight. You guys doing well? Having a good summer? It's going quick, isn't it? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to spend time in your word tonight, to look at the last words of David, to look at these mighty acts of these men who fought alongside of him. We pray that we would think about what is the lasting message of our life or what ink that we're putting down on paper. Or would you allow us to live for you? Would you be glorified in our lives? May we face the challenges that you put before us with the spiritual weapons that you provided. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the lasting message of the life of Prince who has recently passed away? What would you sum up the lasting message of his life? How about Michael Jackson? What's the lasting message of of his life. How about Moses? What's the lasting message of Moses' life? He was called the friend of God. It's quite a, a lasting message. How about Solomon from the scriptures? What's his lasting message? The wisest man who ever lived had many wives in the tune of a thousand, married from pagan lands, And those women turned his heart from the one true God to walk into idolatry. That's his lasting message. We hope that he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, and it's his memoirs of his return to God, but we don't know for sure. That's his lasting message. Tonight we're going to look at the lasting message of David. David's life has a lasting message. It's his last words that are recorded for us in Scripture. Also, we're going to look at the lasting message of the mighty men of valor. He's got men that surrounded him, that walked with him through battle, and their life comes off the pages of Scripture with a lasting message. This has been something that God's been speaking to me over this last two weeks. As we were at the family camp, they really challenged us to think about what's the story of your life? What ink are you putting on paper? And God's the one who holds the pen, doesn't he? And he's writing the story of our lives. He invites us to take along the pen with him, where he has the chief position, but then we hold onto his hand, and we begin to allow the Lord, through daily choices that we make, to put together the story of our life. And so at family camp, we were challenged with this question, what's the lasting message of your life? And while we were there, Amber's grandma passed away and goes home to be with the Lord. She's 88 years old. Jean Harder had the opportunity to go to her funeral and hear the lasting message of her life. And she lived well to the glory of God. Then to come home and teach a message on David's lasting message. I think God's trying to get a point across to me. And Amber's grandma, the first time that I met her, was at the rehearsal of our wedding almost 15 years ago. And it was this small sanctuary in the foothills of Denver 
We're trying to get the rehearsal started. There were a few people late, which is always the story at rehearsals, isn't it? I was eating a bag of chips in this sanctuary. So I hadn't had dinner. And here comes Amber's grandma, Jean Harder. And she looks at me and she says, no eating in the sanctuary. I was like, like I, got, I got the mom rebuke right there, right? From this lady I just barely met. And then she just starts laughing. You know, she had got me, you know. And as we meditated upon her life, we thought about all the things that she loves. Her, her husband uh, was a Southern Baptist pastor, and she served alongside of him and supported him. And no doubt she loved Jesus. That was the lasting message of her life. As a young girl, her parents weren't saved. It was a difficult home to grow up in. And we're talking elementary age in St. Louis and not a very good neighborhood. She was walking to church by herself because God had touched her life. She loved Jesus. She loved God's word. That was said over and over in her, in her funeral. She, she lived that. And she loved the word of God. She loved to study the word of God. She loved missions. I think one of the things that she's rejoicing in heaven is to see all the people groups around the heart of God. She always supported the missions work inside of, of her church. She loved books. We have some of her books. And that's a real treasure to be able to have. She was instrumental in her Baptist churches to have little libraries that they checked out really good books. But she was a lover of truth and a lover of good books. A lover of art. She loved, loved to paint and loved God's beauty. She was a lover of a good discussion, especially theology. Amber was visiting her about three weeks ago. And she told Amber, I just love talking about theology. And she didn't even care if you always agreed with her or she agreed with you. She wanted to get to the scriptures to see what God had to say about a particular issue. She loved the Lord. She finished well. That's her lasting message, to love Christ and to love people. So here's the question I want you to think about as we spend a few moments together tonight. Is what is the message of your life? If you were to sum it up right now, the way you're living tonight, what would be the message of your life? Now, not what you intend it to be, not what you'd like it to be, but what it is. What it is. Would it be a life of faithfulness? Would it be a life of contagious love for Jesus? Would it be a life of materialism? A life of selfishness? A life of being lukewarm? But wrestle with that for the next few moments. And we're going to come back to that question as we close. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus, David, the son of Jesse. We've had quite a journey with David. We've seen him as a young shepherd boy, anointed as king, defeating Goliath through his own time of compromise and rebellion. But now he's at that moment where he's speaking his last words. All of us will have our last words. Our life will end. That's for sure. And we will come to that moment where we're speaking for the last time. Whose last words stand out to you? I think of Christ upon the cross. The seven sayings of Christ as he was being crucified. I think of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to Timothy. Those are his last words in 2 Timothy. And here we have the last words of David. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. One of the lasting message of David's life is God has the ability to raise someone up. 
David lived in obscurity to the point when Samuel came looking for the next king among the sons of Jesse, David wasn't even invited to the party. God kept speaking to Samuel, this isn't it, he's not it, nope. Finally, Samuel says, do you have any more sons? Oh yeah, there's the runt, the youngest. He's out with the sheep. God raised David up. Also, he's the sweet psalmist. David loved worship. The psalms are filled with his songs and his adoration for God. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. He knew that God's Spirit had moved in his heart and his life to cause him to speak. And there's a good order here. David hears from God. God's word gets into his heart. So then he speaks it. He declares it. One of the lasting testimonies of David's life is the word of God was on his tongue throughout his life. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. That was God's intent for godly leadership, that they would rule in the fear of God. If one lived that way, this would be their testimony, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun arises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Quite a description for for one's life. But notice verse 5. This is David's words. Although my house is not so with God. David owns his own failure here at the end of his life. And he's saying, I knew God's intent for me to walk in righteousness and the fear of the Lord, but it's not so in my house. I have my own compromise, my own sin with, with Bathsheba, the effect that that happened with my sons, kings and sons. One of the legacies that we have from David's life is how to handle failure, how to handle when we rebel against God. David repented in a great way. He didn't allow his life to stay in those moments of sin. That's going to be on the timeline of our lives as well. It'd be nice if there was no mistakes in our life, no failure in our life, no disobedience in our life. But that's not where we live. There is going to be failure. But how do you respond? We want to respond like David. And he admits that failure even at the end. And I love this. He says, Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and my desire. Will he not make it increase? What was the everlasting covenant that God had given to David? David wanted to build God a house, a temple. God said, no, your hands are too bloody. But David, I'm going to build you a house. Your descendants are going to reign forever. Fulfilled through Christ. I was reading Matthew 1 this week. And once again, I was floored by the fact that David's in the genealogy of Christ. If we were thinking of a genealogy for God in human flesh, we probably wouldn't think David. But all of those there in the genealogy are descendants of David. Christ coming from the line of David to fulfill this promise. And one of the lasting messages that we have from David's life is God's unconditional commitment of love. Even though David failed, God didn't take back his covenant with David. Isn't that awesome? God could have said, well, David, you committed adultery and that was a condition of my promise that your descendants would reign forever. The promise is off the table. David 
experienced great consequences for his sin, but God kept his unconditional covenant of love. And that's true in our lives as well. That in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our sin and rebellion, God stays true to his commitment of love towards us. In verse 6 and 7, But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of the spear, and they shall utterly burn with fire in their place. Sons of rebellion, thrust away. Speaking of Saul, speaking of Absalom, verse 7 speaks of those that have to deal with sons of rebellion. David's lasting message, God's ability to raise someone up. David's heart for worship, David's repentance, God's unconditional commitment of love. But what do we really remember David for? If you were going to sum up David's life in one lasting message, what would you say? A man after God's own heart. God was looking for a king that had a heart after the Lord. All of the rest of the kings of Israel are held to the standard of David. When God comments on their life, they're like, yeah, he was like David and he walked in my ways. Or he was not like David and he walked in idolatry. So even though David sinned and David failed greatly, we see this consistent theme throughout his life that he always returned back to. And that's David longed to be in the presence of God. He longed to be a worshiper. He was a great worshiper. Like Moses' life was a lasting message being the friend of God, David's life is a lasting message of worship. That's something for us to learn from. That would be wonderful for people to be able to say at our memorial, at our funeral, yeah, Eric had his mistakes, he had his failures, these are some of his highlights. Man, you didn't want to get on his bad side over here, you know, those type of things. But one thing we know is, man, he loved to worship God. He was consistent in the house of the Lord. And that's what we find from, from David's lasting message. Now, these next few verses for me is one of my favorites. Now, whenever I say that to my family, they always laugh because it's like, I mean, all the Bible's my favorite. It seems like we've got a ton of, of favorite, but this is really one of my favorite sections because it talks about David's mighty men. And there's so many things for us to learn. There's so many things to us to apply to our own lives. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. What was the condition that these men came to David? The Bible tells us, do you remember the three Ds? They were in debt, distressed, and discontent. Sound familiar? Do you find yourself in debt tonight? Distressed, discontent? Well, you're right in the place that these guys were. David was fleeing from Saul. 600 men come alongside David. And out of these men, some rise to the top. They're transformed as they follow David. We're transformed as we follow Jesus. We come to him in our broken condition. We follow Christ and he changes our lives. Here's the first man. Josheb, Bathshebeth, the Tachmonite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. So of these 600 men, we have divisions. There's a division of 30 great men. And out of that 30, there was three that rose to the top. And the first is a dino. And he's known for killing 800 men at one time. That's the lasting message of his life, that he was a great warrior. Now think about that. 
Let's just think about eight dudes against you. Eight dudes against me. I'm not going to hedge my bets. I've lost one to eight. I'd have a hard time one to one. Let's be honest, okay? All right. Here's a dino. There's 800 guys. And we don't know the backstory. I would love to know the backstory. But God allows him to kill 800 men, 800 enemies of Israel at one time. What does this take to be able to accomplish this? Courage, doesn't it? This is when most people are going to call today and hope that they're faster than all of these 800 men. That's all that matters at this point, right? It's kind of like a run-in with the bear. The only thing that matters at that point is if you're faster than the bear. Most people would take off. It takes courage. It takes faith to believe that God could bring about a great victory. This is supernatural. This is something that only God can do. It wasn't that a dino had all this great strength in himself, but he trusted the Lord. So it takes courage and it takes faith. I'd like to suggest to you tonight that part of the lasting message that you would desire and that God would desire for your life is one of courage and faith. That there's going to be some real challenges in life. There's going to be times where we want to run and hide, go home, go the other way, but that's where it's important to have courage. There's very few lives that are respected without courage. And courage is seen in the small things as well. It takes courage to get up and to go to work every day. It takes courage to be faithful in your marriage, courage to invest in your children, courage to blossom where you're planted. But we will all face many crossroads where we have to decide if we're going to walk in the courage of the Lord, faith and trust in him. And if we do, God will do a great work for, for his glory. So that's the first, a dino. Can you guys remember? What's his name? A dino. It's pretty cool, right? A dino. See if you'll have it in five minutes. So we go on in verse nine. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Now that's unfortunate. Who's your dad? Well, Dodo, you know, but that's, that's what the scripture says. The Hohite, that's unfortunate too. I'm not going to go there. And <laughs> one of the three mighty men with David, when they defiled the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated, he arose and attacked the Philistines. One of the three mighty, Eleazar, everybody else is retreating. A battle with the Philistines. Can you picture it? Instead of retreating, he arose and he attacked the Philistines. Note this, until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword, the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. Everyone else is running for their lives. Eliezer looks at his sword, looks at the Philistines that are running towards him, decides to stand his ground. And by the time that he's done, he swung that sword so many times, the scripture tells us that his hand is stuck to the sword. Someone had to come and pry the sword out of his hand. We know we fight a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. That's what Ephesians chapter 6 tells us. We know that God has given us his word, the sword of the spirit, sharper than any two-edged sword. We would desire that the lasting message of our lives would be 
that the word of God is stuck to our hand. That they had to peel the word of God from our hand. Hopefully, as we go throughout our days, the word of God is not too far from our hand. Remember the days when people packed around Gideon Bibles in their back pocket? You used to be able to see it. It was called the pocket Bible, and they'd slip it right back there. Some of you may still have those. There's something about having the word of God with you. Now we really get to cheat. You know how we get to cheat? Is you can put it on your phone really easy, right? And that's great. I'm all for that. But do we use it? Is, is it an app that's there that's never get used? Or, or you've got the word of God, whether it's a pocket Bible or an app on your phone, and it's readily available to spend some time in God's word. There's no other way to grow than through the word of God. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Maybe you look at someone's life like Amber's grandma, Jean Harder, and you go, wow, what an amazing woman of God. How did she get there? There's no shortcuts. There's no secrets. It's a word. It's being in the word of God with an open heart, an open mind, allowing God's word to be planted deep within us, being that fertile soil. That's why you're here on a holiday weekend. You're soaking up the word of God. And Eliezer is a great picture of greatness, a great picture of a of lasting message. And we have to fight for this, don't we? Our lives are busy. Our lives are full. What was one of the things that caused the word of God to have no impact in the parable of the sower? this parable of the sower. It was the crowded soil. The seed was planted among the weeds, and the weeds grew around the word of God and choked out the word of God. And Jesus went on to interpret that to say that that is the cares of this life. We just get too busy for the word of God. So if if I'm going to be like Eleazar, and I'm going to be a person of the word, and the word of God is always going to be close to my hand and my heart, I'm going to have to come up with a plan to spend time in God's word. This may be helpful to you, but pick a time and place. Make an appointment with God. Are you a morning person? Say, I'm going to have my time in the word in the mornings. Are you an evening person? You're, you're most alert at night. God bless you. That is not me. By 10 o'clock tonight, I will be comatose. But if you are someone who's a night person, then take advantage of that. Jesus spent time with the Father at night, at night as well. But pick a time, a place, and pick a book of the Bible. Maybe you're saying, I try to spend time in God's word, but I don't know where to start. The book of Mark is a great book to start. And just as we're studying the word here at Rocky Mountain, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, do that with books of the Bible. Go through the book of Mark, go through Proverbs, and over time decide, I'm going to read Genesis to Revelation. God can do that in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit to take you through the whole counsel of God's word. Memorize God's word. Be a person of the word and then use the word. It's meant to be used, amen? We're in a spiritual battle. We don't come against Philistines, but Satan's coming against our families. He's coming against our church. He's coming against our community. What do we do? We stand and fight with the word of God. We use the word of God. And it's important for us to learn from Eliezer's example. To put it to you frankly, I don't know that we have any chance of standing if we're not in the Word of God. Things are really changing. 
We're living in a dark world, in a dark society. And the only way to be rooted and to be grounded is to be in the word of God. And it's God's love letter. It's our communion with the Lord. So we go on and we look at the third mighty man. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herhite, the Philistine, had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. What do you think the lasting message of Shammah's life is? Faithfulness. These are lentils. These are beans. And the Philistines want the beans. They want them for whatever. The, what is it in Spanish? Frijoles, yes. They want the frijoles. They're like, mm, we want the beans. And everybody says, you can have the beans. Go for it. But here's Shama, and he says, nope, you're not taking my beans. I hate split pea soup. It's the worst, you know? My tendency would be like, hey, you can have the frijoles. You can have the beans. They are yours for the taking. I'm not going to risk my life for these beans. <laughs> you guys are looking at me strange. Just trying to keep your attention going tonight. I'm losing it quick. You're like, you guys are looking at me like, you're crashing and burning. I hope you realize that right now. Point is this. Nobody else wants to protect the beans. But Shammah says, I'm going to be faithful. And he's, he stands then God responds to his faithfulness, Shammah's faithfulness, and God brings about a great victory. Never undermine faithfulness. That is an amazing testimony of your life. Maybe you feel like your job is meaningless. Do it under the Lord. Guard those beans under the Lord. And God will use that faithfulness for his glory. But there's a lot more than beans that are at stake, isn't there? Maybe the enemy is attacking your marriage and attacking your kids. You say, you know what? I am not going to allow the enemy to have this victory. I'm going to stand between the enemy and my marriage, the enemy and my kids, the enemy and my church, not because I'm anything special, but because God tells me to resist the enemy and he'll flee and wait to see God do a great victory. Jesus told us, be faithful in the little things. Be faithful with the beans. And if you're faithful with the beans, you'll be faithful with much. A wonderful, powerful testimony from Shammah's life, a life of faithfulness. In verse 13, the three of the 30 men, chief men, went down at the harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. So these three men team up together while David's at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines camped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Caves are not so great to live in. They're cold, they're dark, ventilation isn't very good. David's sinking of his hometown, Bethlehem, where he grew up, a specific well, and he's like, oh, if I could just have a drink of water from there. Maybe you can relate a difficult time 
And you think back to a place of refreshment. You're like, oh, if I were only there. And that's what these three men hear. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. These three men knew the commands of their king, but they also knew the heartbeat of their king. They knew what he was longing for. And when we think of our king, hopefully we know his commands, but also hopefully we know his heartbeat. We're close enough to God that we hear the desires of God, the longings of God. And when they hear David's desires, they respond to it. And they go down into the valley, go through this garrison of Philistine soldiers just to get some water for David, come back and deliver it to David. David's so overwhelmed that these guys risked their lives to give him this drink of water. He says, this is too valuable for me. I'm not worthy to be able to drink this. And then he pours it out before the Lord, and he offers it as a drink offering to the Lord. And we see that at the end of verse 16, nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he goes on to say, these men risked their lives. How encouraging was that for David? Do you think he had any doubt that a dino, Eliezer, Shammah were with him? They responded to his heartbeat. They responded to his, his desire. And David gives that to the Lord in worship. Verse 18, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was the chief of another three. So we've got another group of, of three, but they're not in the top group. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Notice it says Abishai, the brother of Joab. Joab is not included in this list. And you would think that he would be because of all of his military victories, but he was lacking in character. So it's not just how much you accomplish. It's just not how many military victories you have, but what kind of a person you are as well. And Abishai, he's similar to a dino. He stood up against 300 men instead of 800 men. So he has a name in the second group of three. Now, does it disturb you at all that these men are in different classes? You have the 30, then you have the top three, that's team A. And then you've got, well, the team B, that's the second group of three, but they're better than the, the others. And you're like, well, how, I didn't know that God did that or God cared. And why are their accomplishments ranked in, in this way? This can really mess with your head as a believer. You might go, well, God only allowed me to kill 300. And a dino was able to kill 800. And because of it, he's in the top three. And I'm down here at like number four. And I'm really frustrated that I'm number four. And why, why am I not considered number one? And why didn't I get to kill 800. But remember, God only wants us to be faithful. So what should we re respond? We should rejoice with those who rejoice and go, God, praise the Lord that a dino was able to kill 800. And I'm just so thankful that I was able to kill 300 because I thought I didn't have a chance with three. You follow my thinking? 
But it's easy for our flesh and jealousy to, to get in when God begins to list accomplishments and things that he's done through our lives. Verse 19. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not obtain to the first three. So he's the captain of this second group of three. Benaniah was the son of Jehoiadad, the son of a valiant man from Kabazil, who had done many deeds. So this is just a few of the deeds that he did. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. Remember again, we draw the spiritual analogy, Satan is likened to a roaring lion. And here, Benadab, he kills two lion-like men from Moab, their enemies. And he also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Believe it or not, it does snow in Israel. We don't think of it as a place that has snow, but northern Israel gets snow. So here it is, a snowy day in Israel. We have snowy days. What do you want to do on a really snowy day? I want to drink an ungodly amount of coffee. That's what I want to do on a snowy day. Like a real snowy, dark, cold day causes me to want to just kind of close the doors, relax, not do a whole lot, right? And there's been many times on a snowy day that I think of Benaiah and think, okay, it's a snowy day, but there's still a real enemy. God's still on the throne and there's work that needs to be done today. Sometimes it's a physical snowy day that we need to go after the lion, but sometimes our soul faces a snowy day, doesn't it? It might be the middle of July, might be 4th of July weekend, and you just wake up kind of foggy. Anybody else have snowy soul days? I get snowy soul days where I'm just not quite right. And it's easy for me to think, well, I'm just going to give myself a pass. I'm having a blizzard of the soul, so I don't have to do anything today, right? And it takes great character. It takes great determination to say, it's a snowy day physically, or it's a snowy day internally. I'm not going to allow that to get the best of me. There's a lion. There's Satan who's trying to destroy but I'm going to rise up in the power of God's strength. Benaniah does that, and he comes back and killed a lion. God thought that it was worthy enough to record in his word. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. Man, that's manly right there. That is extremely manly. Here's this Egyptian... He's got his spear. He's a spectacular man. He's a huge man. And here comes Benaniah. He's like, I'm going to go at you with my staff. Yeah, I'm going to take this stick, and I'm going to teach you a lesson with this stick. And he starts wrestling him with the staff, with the stick, to the point where he gets the spear away from him and kills the Egyptian with his own spear. Church, do you know that God's going to call us as Christians to do hard things? Everything about these mighty men involves challenge, adversity, determination, perseverance. It's not easy. Men and women, God is calling you to difficult things for his glory. Egypt is likened to the world throughout scripture, is a picture of the world. So here we find Ben and I, he goes against a lion who's likened to Satan. 
He goes up against Egypt, who's likened to the world, all for God's glory. Aren't you looking forward to meeting these guys in Scripture? Maybe Ben and I just walks around heaven with his staff, you know? It's like, hey, what's up? How you guys doing, you know? These things the son of Jehoiada did and won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he didn't attain to the first three. And David anointed him over his guard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30, another brother of Joab. We've seen of him throughout the scriptures. From verse 24 all the way down to verse 37, the, le- the rest of the men are listed. We will pick it up in verse 39. A great 4th of July activity for you is to read all of those names out loud. I'm going to spare myself the pain this evening and jump to verse 39. And Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. So 37 men are listed in all. And the last one is listed is Uriah. Do you know Uriah? His wife was Bathsheba. When David took Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, he killed a great man. He killed a mighty man of valor, a man that was listed for his great character. So we come back to three questions, three things to consider tonight as we close. And what is the message of David's life? That's the first question. What is the message of David's life? We're wrapping up his life. Got one more study on him next week. He was a worshiper. Psalms 27 verse 4 says, One thing I desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. I love it when the scripture boils it down to one thing. David says, this is the one thing. This is the one thing I've desired. I want to dwell in God's presence. I want to behold his beauty. I want to worship him. I think we would find David in worship services enjoying the Lord. I think we would find David early in the morning pouring his heart out to God, late at night crying out to God, in the midday getting out his guitar and lifting his voice to the Lord. That's the lasting message of his life. He was a worshiper. What do these mighty men have in common of all that we read? What's something that we can take from them and say, I I would love for God to make this part of my story. They attacked in adversity. They attacked in adversity. I thought first of saying that they stood strong in adversity, which they did. When everybody else was running, they decided that they would stand. But they didn't just stand. They decided that they would attack against all odds. James 4 verse 7 write it down, says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God wants you on the offensive in his kingdom. He wants me on the offensive in his kingdom. We're in this spiritual battle. Each of these mighty men used their weapons. Ephesians 6 gives us the weapons that God has provided, the armor of God, the word of God to be able to use in this battle that the Lord has has placed us in. Use those weapons that he's given. But here's the most personal question tonight. What will be the lasting message of my life? 
What will be the lasting message of my life? He was great at his job. She was great at her job. Is that what we want the lasting message from our life to be? Maybe a portion of it, but not to the neglect of our relationship with God, not to the neglect of our relationship with our family and with our kids. Are there incredible turnarounds in the scripture? It's one of the things they pointed out in this family camp where someone's life was being written in a certain direction and God turned their life around. Can you guys think of some turnaround stories in scripture? How about a guy named Saul in the New Testament who became Paul? Quite a turnaround story. How about Peter as a disciple following the Lord? Made quite a few mistakes, didn't he? Wasn't looking so good as his story was being written. I mean, Jesus had to say, Satan, get behind me. And he's speaking of Peter. Rebuked him. Failed. God restored Peter. The Spirit filled him. 3,000 people get saved the first time that he gives a message. Quite a turnaround story. Some of you might be saying, you know, my story's pretty well written, and I don't think there's any turnaround for me. And that's not biblical. It's not scriptural. There's an opportunity tonight to turn to the Lord and allow God to begin to write a different story in your life. Maybe it's getting saved. That's the beginning point. That's where Jesus begins to author the story of our lives. He calls us by name. The gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again according to the scripture. Our sin is what separates us from God. And tonight, this 4th of July weekend, as you've come and as we enter back into worship, there's going to be a prayer team in the front where you can come and receive Christ as your Savior. He's been knocking upon the door of your heart and your life and saying, I want you to be my son, to be my daughter. Some of you, as you look at your life, it's not perfect, but you've thought about this for a long time. This is not a new thought for you. And you've put great effort and intention to how your life is lived, how God is writing your story, how you're walking in obedience to the Lord. Would I encourage you keep going? Keep going. It's very rare in scripture and in life to find somebody who finishes well. Go on to read the rest of the kings. A lot of them don't finish well. David's not perfect. He didn't stay in his place of sin and he finished well. And that's what we want our story to be. We want to continue to run strong with Jesus to when he calls us home, we're in love with Christ. We're full stride, amen? So keep going. But take some thought, take some time to think about this and pray this through. Is what's the story of my life? What's the lasting message of my life? And if it's something less than what we would want and what God would want, it's a great opportunity to start being intentional. But here's what you got to do. Just start thinking, okay, what do I want the message of my life to be? Obedience to God. So how do I put that into practice? Fellowship with God. So how do I put that into practice? I want to be a godly husband. How do I put that into practice? I want to be a godly parent. How do I put that into practice? Because good intentions don't write the story of your life. We, we, we can do that all day long. That's where we go to the Lord. We get out a pen and paper. 
We get out a calendar for the week. We start saying, okay, this is how I want my day to start. And I'm going to start it with the Lord. These are some key things that I want to happen every day. Don't make it a lot. Just make it a few. One or two things. And allow the Lord to put that into our lives. And I want to leave you with a great promise. And here it is. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's more committed to writing this story than we are. And he's going to be faithful to finish that good work that he started. We're not on our own. Amen? So let's stand and let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be challenged in your word tonight. Thank you for these mighty men. Thank you for how they stood in time of adversity. We pray that you give us strength to stand strong in the power of your might, to fight the spiritual battle. We submit afresh to you. We want to resist the enemy. Use the weapons that you have provided for us. Or we think about our lives and the gift that you've given to us. And we pray that we could have a lasting message that would honor you. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness and your empowering. God, would you empower us? Lord, and may we walk with you in obedience. God, would you bless your people tonight? Would you encourage them with hope? In Jesus' name, amen.